Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm speaking today to Michael Cuenco, who is a policy analyst, researcher, writer, and an associate editor at American Affairs, where he has also published a number of essays that are rich and ambitious and worthy of widespread attention and consideration. So I think we'll primarily focus on the most recent of those, which is called uh, Victory is Not Possible, A Theory of the Culture War, and which I think is one of the most impressive attempts to make sense of, you know, the the various phenomena that go under the heading of the culture war. So in any case, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, uh, Jeff, and thank you for the kind introduction. And yeah, I'm very happy to uh, be here with you today. Yeah, so, you know, one thing I just appreciate about your work is it's very... Um, it's, it's very focused on the systemic level of things and I think really tries to take phenomena as manifestations of some sort of broader systemic logic. And so I think, you know, the, the various pieces we can touch on, I'll, I'll sort of do this in, in different but um, sort of intersecting ways. The most recent piece, um, which... As I said, I uh, I was extremely impressed with and um, ha- have been thinking about a lot ever since I read it. Uh, it appeared in American Affairs um, spring 2022. It is called Victory is Not Possible, A Theory of the Culture War. And the, the title Victory is Not Possible comes from Orwell's 1984. So uh, you sort of frame the whole discussion around uh, around Orwell, and interestingly, also around James Burnham's The Managerial Revolution, which Orwell sort of engaged with. And I think it um, it's it's not only notable that it, um, you know, is just a, a really strong and original contribution to our understanding of the culture war, but at the same time, it, it sort of takes particularly a text as familiar as 1984 and, and does something quite new with it. So, you know, to maybe get started, um, perhaps you could just try to lay out the the argue, the general argument that you make in this piece for the benefit of my listeners. Sure thing. Yeah. So this is my uh, attempt, as you as you had said, my attempt to uh, grapple with the culture war and with the state of American and Western politics, uh, where, you know, we've been living now for. I don't know how long it's been since the financial crisis, uh, 2008, like a decade now where we keep on talking about, you know, the morbidity of the neoliberal order. Uh, and everybody is so excited about the uh, collapse of the neoliberal order and, uh, you know, the next big thing that's going to come. And, you know, we still haven't got it right. So, you know, after Occupy Wall Street, after Bernie Sanders, after Donald Trump, we're still not there. So this is my attempt to grapple with why that is. And, uh, you know, so I, I, took, uh, I took George Orwell and James Burnham and uh, this other uh, 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 scholar whose name is uh, 
uh, Ronald Englehart, and I thought they had some very useful theoretical perspectives, uh, which I could which I could utilize. And basically, what it is is for the last uh, for most of American history, you had uh, these essentially these cycles of elite struggle or class struggle, where each uh, each cycle uh, appeared to produce a, a, a social, economic, institutional regime, uh, you know, with its own set of parameters and its own, um, you know, rules of the game. Uh, and this is a pretty clear-cut pattern uh, for most American history. And then something happens right around the post-war era where the cleavages begin to shift from political economy towards uh, intangible, more intangible social and cultural cleavages. And uh, I noticed that that pretty much threw off the whole pattern. And while the political uh, economy issues, uh, you know, remained as real and as relevant as ever, you know, uh, at, at the surface level of political discourse and uh, cultural discourse, things just changed uh, in the direction of, of self-expression and identity politics and all of those kinds of things. And we've been living in this, in this, in this condition ever since. So that's basically what it is. Right. So the Englehart uh, text is the silent revolution, um, yes. if I'm recalling correctly. And essentially it, it identifies the shift towards the, the sort of immaterial and intangible um, that in a sense comes out of this, I suppose, kind of moving upward on the, the sort of pyramid of needs or whatever, um, or yes. you know, the, the away from um, material necessities to kind of higher level concerns. And, yes. you know, I think perhaps we might connect this to, to another piece you wrote um, in Palladium called America's New Post-Literate Epistemology, because I think, um, you know, you, I, you know, if you, if you tried to bring in this framework to, to the more recent piece, it probably would have, um, you know, ended up being more like book length, but, you know, it seems yeah. to me that this is also a, a mediatic shift, right? It's, it's a shift in sort of media regime Definitely, um, and, yeah. and not, not, not merely a shift in, um, I mean, it, it obviously, the, these things are closely linked, right? But it's um, in the post-war era, you have a shift that's not only sort of material, but mediatic in, in its nature. That. Yes, yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, something happened in the post-war era, something very uh, significant and, you know, epical. And there's not really going to be one uh, definitive theory to, to deal with it. Uh, so the Palladium essay and the American Affairs uh, piece, they're two attempts to grapple with the same question, which is what happened in the post-war era when the Western world you know, achieve this unprecedented level of economic success and affluence. Uh, you know, something came unstuck. And, and I would phrase it uh, in terms of sort of the, uh, the linear concept of progress, you know, the, the, the great, you know, meta-narrative of progress that's been a driving force for the last, uh, you know, two, three, for the prior, you know, two, three centuries. All of a sudden that came unstuck. And something changed in the air, in the water. I don't know, you know, how you describe it, but uh, you could you could approach it through the Marshall McLuhan lens, which focuses on communications. You could take a look at it from the political economy lens, 
And, you know, there are other theories out there that I'm, I'm sure will be, you know, just as, as useful. Uh, but yes, yeah, something happened in the post-war era that uh, we as a society have not yet been able to fully process. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. And so, you know, another point that you make here is that Burnham, who, you know, has, has sort of had something of a revival in recent years, it seems like. Yeah. You know, himself in some ways, I mean, on one hand, there, there are many things about his argument that are still compelling and that, you know, I think Michael, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on Michael Lynn's um, book on the subject, the new class war, but, you know, I, I actually I helped overall, to, to yeah. edit that book. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think he does a good job of kind of bringing these insights to bear on the present. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, you also point to the way that Burnham, you know, he writes, he publishes the managerial revolution in 40, 1942. Is that right? Somewhere it would have been 1940. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he, I mean, so he, he grasps um, something that's significant and still um, in many ways, you know, prescient, but, you know, at the same time, you note that he sort of, um, he, he also miss, um, he, he misapprehended some aspects of what was happening. And in a sense, I think the way you define this in the recent pieces that he, um, you know, he, he, he imagined this kind of dark, you know, rise of this, um, you know, rather dystopian and despotic order. And then instead what, you know, um, you know, you refer to um, a, a 1950 book he wrote called The Coming Defeat of Communism, yeah. sort of after he had completed his, his shift to the right. But, you know, basically he, you said he did to some degree notice the humane and apparently idyllic quality of post-war American life under, under the managers. So, yeah. you know, there's something interesting here, which is that he, he, um, he, he saw this revolution happening, but in some sense he didn't um, anticipate quite um, how, how, you know, American life would look once it was complete. And I mean, this, yeah. this also relates to a kind of irony that I've long remarked upon, which is sort of the way that the right um, will, you know, you have this kind of weird bifurcated nostalgia where basically the right is, is, or, I mean, I feel like this is less, oh, well, it's, it still sort of exists in this memeified form, but you know, we'll um, hark back to the 1950s. Right. I mean, I remember, like a long time ago, I remember like Bob Dole, you know, just kind of explicitly rhapsodizing about like, well, you know, the 1950s were just the the time when American culture and society was was actually at the sort of moment of its its greatest sort of, he you know, civic health and, yes, and yes. Um, families were intact and all that. So you have that longstanding right wing nostalgia for the the sort of soci sociocultural regime of the fifties. And yes. then on the other hand, you have somebody like, I don't know, you know, Robert Reich or somebody like that will basically say, well, what we need to go back to is, you know, essentially the economic regime of the 1950s. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So it's like, so the, the right wants the fifties without the sort of strong organized labor and, um, you know, sort of, you know, um, New Deal top-down managerial state, whereas the, the left wants the 50s without the kind of um, middle-class cultural homogeneity and yeah, you know, sort of yeah. uh, gender, gender stratification and things like that. So, you know, it's interesting that Burnham kind of coming at this 
from um you know from the other side he basically he he sort of anticipates this dystopia but then when he's actually going out and observing the United States at the beginning of the 50s he's kind of seeing what seems like this relatively healthy and robust kind of society so yeah exactly yeah and, you know, uh, yeah uh, so the thing the interesting thing about burnham in that particular time period is he was making the transition from uh he was a very active member of the trotskyite movement uh, in the 1930s uh and then he fell out with and, and he corresponded a lot with trotsky uh but i don't i don't think they ever met but then he fell out with trotsky and then he sort of went his own way and then as as we know as you said he would drift over to the william f buckley jr uh, National Review Camp. But when he wrote The Managerial Revolution in the late 30s, early 40s, and this other uh, excellent book called The Machiavellian's Defenders of Freedom, he was, so he was sort of caught in between those, those two things. And he was really in this period of creative, uh, you know, or ideological flux. So you have a very uh, interesting framework where he combines Marxist material analysis with uh, Italian elite theory, uh, which we don't get a lot of. Uh, so that's one thing I can say about James Burnham is that he's really only interesting to me in that particular time period. Afterwards, he be he becomes kind of like a conservative anti-communist hack, basically. And, and I, you know, his, his later work is not very interesting to me. Uh, and then the other, the dynamic you mentioned where the, you know, the conservatives look back at the 1950s and, and they love, you know, they love the, the stability of society, but they don't consider the economic underpinnings of that. You know, Michael Lind actually has another great book that he wrote in 2012 called Land of Promise, the Economic History of the United States. And he looks at American history through the lens of the Hamilton versus Jefferson dichotomy. And I remember reading that and that I, I couldn't after having read that, I couldn't unsee uh, American history you know, outside of that framework. So I, I consider myself a, a convert to that. But basically, you have these Hamiltonian called the Hamiltonian periods of nation building where like the New Deal or like the Abraham Lincoln, you know, Homestead Act, where the federal government steps in and, you know, uh, in line with the Hamiltonian view of government, you know, basically produces a, 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 a new social and economic order, uh, produces prosperity and social mobility. And you have this tremendous, uh, you know, period of, of, of creativity in American society. But then, you know, something happens where the American psyche forgets that the government was was involved in this. And then it, it sort of settles into this. Uh, I think he refers to it as a kind of a Jeffersonian reaction where what, you know, the, the fruits of government intervention are, you know, uh, selectively, uh, you know, remembered or reimagined as being, you know, the, you know, like the 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 fruits of, uh, you know, of the free market or something like that, you know, like. I think JFK gave a speech where he was, uh, you know, he was calling out the Republicans for speaking out against healthcare reform. And they were saying, you know, this will ruin the frontier spirit, you know, but JFK was like, you know, the frontier was settled by the government. You know, it was, it was, it was Abraham Lincoln's Homestead Act that redistributed land to the, to the settlers and they built the railroads and they had the agricultural colleges with a moral act. And, but now it's remembered as this kind of, you know, Davy Crockett, you know, spirit of American individualism. And, and, and you know, so the 1950s is basically just another version of that. Yeah, I love that point. Um, so, you know, what, um, you know, what, I mean, it partly points to these kinds of, um, 
mythologies that emerge um, that, that are often, yeah, kind of disconnected from the from the political economy of of the periods that are then mythologized. Um, and, you know, in some ways it seems like that's particularly true of kind of the, the conservative mythologies um, that, they, that they tend to often um, kind of proceed oblivious to that um, dimension of, of analysis. Yes. Um, so, I mean, as far as your, you know, and, and I mean, in a sense, this whole theme of mythology is itself kind of, relevant to some of your concerns, because I think, you know, part of what happens with this, this sort of silent revolution where, you know, basically um, there's a, I mean, in in a sense, the silent revolution itself entails a kind of shift away from political economy as an explicit ideological framework for politics. Right. So in other words, um, you know, we're, we're relatively familiar with this idea in some ways, right? That that essentially um, you you have a, I mean, particularly in discussions on the left, right? You have this basic notion that you have this sort of older left, which is rooted in the labor movement and largely focused on, um, you know, uh, gaining greater rights for workers, um, you know, fundamental rights, um, you know, and things like the... Um, five day work week and, um, you know, and then also things like, um, you know, collective bargaining for higher wages, benefits and things like that. So, you know, there's that notion that you you have a a left, which is explicitly driven by um, concerns of political economy and concerns of increasing the, the sort of both material and political standing of the, groups that that they represented right that these movements yes. represented um whereas you know what what you start getting towards particularly the, you know the end of the 60s and into the 70s is this left which is heavily focused on kind of identity self-realization um you know where you know instead of uh, um instead of kind of a broad coalition that shares basic material and, and political interests, you have a, a sort of fracturing into various kinds of interest groups. And, you know, many of which seem to regard sort of wrecking some sort of symbolic recognition as, as more significant than any kind of material gains. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's correct. And um, yeah, this is part of that, that big sort of shift, that I was talking about earlier where, you know, there used to be uh, a clear narrative of linear progress. And, uh, you know, the, the issues of the day were usually reducible to quantifiable uh, things, you know? So you could still have crazy populist leaders, you know, like William Jennings Bryan, you know, but they, at the end of the day, they have certain demands that, you know, yes, you know, William Jennings Bryan wanted moral recognition for the farmers and the and the and the rural constituencies that he was fighting for but at the end of the day he had a very specific you know set of reforms in monetary policy that he wanted you know and and if you look back at american history pretty much all the the major you know movements and parties of the day had something like that whereas once you get to the 1960s uh 
you know, the, the, the emphasis shifts radically towards recognition and the, the underlying, uh, you know, material demands, uh, you know, they're still there, but then they increasingly, you know, they, they, they're increasingly less important uh, until you, you get to the point where, you know, it's, 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 it's not really the motivating factor anymore. And what I try to point out in the essay is that, you know, Engelhardt starts with the left and he identifies post-materialism as a phenomenon arising out of the left, and he's correct in that. But what I try to highlight as well is that the right, by the end of the 1960s, uh, eventually caught on to the game. And, uh, you know, uh, under the leadership primarily of Nixon, uh, you know, they, they said, well, you know, if, if, if politics is going to be about recognition and about, uh, you know, affirmation of moral and symbolic values, well, we on the right can play that game, too. And so that I think that's when post-materialism really became, uh, you know, the consensus of American politics. Right. And, you know, I think one one way we might um, think about this would be in terms of, you know, and, and to me, the you know, in some ways, this is like going back quite a few cycles in the culture war. But, you know, in I mean, I was you know growing up in the 90s, you had the culture war was still focused on things like, um, you know, there was this like scandal about, you know, Murphy Brown on TV and like representative representing single motherhood. So, you know, the the culture war was, it was a bit more basic than it seems now with, you know, sort of gender ideology in schools and all that. But so, you know, it's, it's maybe easier to, to start there, but, you know, an interesting point to me, again, when I think back to the nineties, when you had, you know, Bob Dole rap for some reason that maybe that was like the 96 election um, sticks in my mind, you know, where he's, he doesn't do very well, but you know, you basically have the kind of libertine Clinton presidency. Yes. um, And then the sort of the rights basically failed attempts to, um, to kind of push back at, at um, push back against the Democrats on this kind of moral, you know, the, the sort of family values grounds. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the cultural war that I grew up, you know, reading about and seeing on TV. Um, and, you know, what's, what's interesting there is the disconnect with um, any kind of, I mean, you know, now you actually hear some of these, um, these sort of newer, um, Republican politicians talking about like the fa- what happened to the family wage, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and interestingly, you have like Elizabeth Warren writing the two income trap um, at a you know at a point when like you could still I mean it's it's kind of hard to imagine her writing that book today and it not being seen as problematic in a way. Yes, um, because you know so so the point is you have this shift um, which is framed in various ways as an entirely cultural one, which would be basically women entering the workforce, um, you know, and, and something like single or divorced parenthood being culturally recognized as valid. Um, yeah. And, you know, being something that, you know, particularly sort of affluent or comfortably middle-class people, um, you know, are sort of familiar with and accept as normal. Um, you know, that that this kind of whole question of like the breakup of the family and so on, the conservatives at that time were um, concerned with. I mean, it, I, I suppose the main thing that they 
they tried to do in policy terms was this kind of punitive welfare reform, right? Which was premised on this idea that, um, you know, basically welfare policies were, um, were encouraging single motherhood or whatever, um, which, but, but what I don't remember was any discussion of, of the basic fact that, um, you know, the, the decline of the family weight, like, you know, the idealized family structure that they would hark back to in the 50s was entirely dependent on this sort of political economic arrangement that had sort of gone out in favor through a kind of collusion of right and left in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was sort of a feminist case for it. And then on the other hand, there were various ways that um, corporate America very much benefited from um, the decline of the family wage and that it was also linked to the d- decline of organized labor. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. If, if, I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the post materialist template that uh, Engelhart identifies, not just in America, but in, in all developed societies, it gets to a certain point where, you know, the level of affluence is, is such that the, you know, the sort of the underlying economic necessity uh, that kept families together for, for, you know, since time immemorial eventually weakens and you have, you know, society, society settles into the, uh, the logic of advanced, uh, you know, capitalism, uh, you know, the, the family, st- you know, statistically is, is going to be, you know, a, a casualty, the traditional family. That's, you see it in Europe, we see it in, in Japan and South Korea, right? Family formation is just way down. So there's this large structural bias against traditional forms of family, traditional forms of community. And all societies that reach a certain level of material development will experience this. But the, you know, this is some, this is a very deep question that has to be reckoned with. But what the American right uh, has done is, you know, they, they can't admit this because it, you know, it, it, it just will raise too many, uh, you know, difficult questions that, that, you know, they may not be interested in, in, in answering, right? So they're going to say something like, well, you know, it's these, these Marxist professors are, you know, peddling, you know, feminist, uh, you know, the women's libbers and, you know, what, what, what is a structural economic fact across all developed societies is re is recast as a, you know, in conspiratorial terms as the, you know, the malevolent actions of a, of a radical minority. And so, but, but if we just admitted that, Hey, this is what happens when you get to a certain level of material development, you know, why don't we have a frank discussion about the things that we can do to preserve those values and those ideals that we hold dear, right? That, that, that to me would be a more honest conversation instead of pinning it on, you know, Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, or Michel Foucault, whoever, whichever European, you know, intellectual you want to pin this on. Yeah, I mean, I've even been thinking about this in terms of the current sort of Disney fracas, and I wrote something about this for Unheard, um, you know, where, yeah. where I, I went back to this kind of Marxist, like anti-imperialist analysis of Disney from the 60s um, from Latin America. Yes. Right. Which which was really analyzing Disney as a kind of carrier of of American propaganda that was kind of trying to instill capitalist values, um, you know, in the sort of subject nations. And, you know, part of how it was doing that was 
that that the Disney, I mean, it, it observes that the Disney plots are, and this is again, a sort of radical Marxist analysis, but it observes that the Disney plots are sort of anti-family in some sense, right? That they're, um, that, you know, sort mm-hmm. of parent-child relationships are almost entirely excluded or made problematic in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, that, that basically, you know, people exist in this family, in family structures in which they can be maximally sort of atomized and individualized. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of read it as this, um, this huge, you know, barrage of propaganda, which is essentially being directed at particularly say countries in Latin America, where you still have a much stronger extended family structure. And the function of it is really to, um, to, you know, create a sort of ideological rationale for the, the weakening of, of family of sort of kinship networks as a value. And, a you know, basically instilling in kids, the notion that fundamentally they're individuals and they have to hack it on their own. Yeah. And, and that they're not, um, you know, that, that they're not, that they're not, they don't actually have to exist embedded in these kind of networks that they should be free agents um, seeking their fortunes in the market. Right. So mm-hmm. I guess, anyway, that's sort of an aside, but you know, wh- what's also interesting to me now is like the right um, is, is suddenly, you know, says that it's waging war, you know, Chris Rufo says he's waging war on Disney and so on. Um, yeah. But, you know, really, <laughs> One thing that they're they're kind of missing is like I mean and usually all the people who are doing this will say well you know Disney is historically this wonderful promoter of of traditional American values and you know only recently did it go wrong because the bad woke people took over or whatever yes but what they're not but what they're not you know again sort of able to see really is that just the whole notion of mass children's entertainment is. I mean, the the whole notion that in a sense, you're kind of outsourcing your moral, you know, the moral instruction of your children to this vast um, sort of corporate conglomerate yes. is, is, a, is itself a kind of remarkable structural phenomenon that has to do with the kind of weakening of the, the sort of locus of the family as, as one of sort of moral authority, right? And it's... Yeah it's kind of, you know, the, the rerouting of these processes of sort of instilling values and, um, you know, telling stories that, you know, historically kind of inhere in communities to this um, vast, you know, corporate structure, you know, mm-hmm. is, is itself something that they might want to be worried about more broadly. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> They're concerned but, about these things, but, but, but they, they tend probably not won't. to be. Yeah. They yeah. tend not to be, um, you know, with, with some exceptions, but you know, so, but I guess another thing that this might lead to is, I, you know, I, just to flesh out a little bit more. So, you know, the, clearly we have the standard narrative that the sort of sh- the left shifts its focus from sort of um, material and, and, you know, directly sort of material gains and, and direct political rights to kind of um, goals of self-realization and recognition. Right. Yeah. And obviously that's something we can see all around us. Um, as you said, you argue that there's a similar shift on the right. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the right at the same time is also kind of moving towards this, um, this ethos of, of, of kind of valuing a certain kind of, you know, identity recognition and self-realization mm-hmm. um, at the expense of other things. And so, in a sense, what, you know, this is sort of the framework you set up for understanding the culture war, right? That, that basically you have these kind of, 
um, these factions that represent competing claims to kind of recognition, um, authority, and and sort of um, you know, and and in a sense, kind of symbolic legitimation, right? As, yes, as sort of um, the the central kind of you know representing the kind of central symbolic complex of the nation or something like that, and that you know, in a sense, also that these projects are kind of rooted in what you call the um, subaltern elites, I think. Yes. Which is, yes. you know, essentially the, the, the sort of um, the, the impetus for these culture war projects comes from basically the, on the left comes from, you know, what's usually called the sort of professional managerial class or yes. something like that on the right from what's been described as like the local gentry or whatever, you yes, know, basically yes, this yes. idea that you have that's been kind of memefied recently, you know, kind of the boat dealers and the sort yeah, of, the, the boaters. you know, basically yeah. the, 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 um, the petty bourgeoisie and in, in Marxist terms, particularly the kind of provincial rural or suburban petty bourgeoisie. Yes. Yes. Um, and so that the, these are kind of the, the, um, the, the sort of social spaces that that give rise to these agendas, which are driven um, largely by a kind of, again, sort of competing projects for or competing demands for kind of recognition. Yeah. And the significance of that is, you know, earlier, you know, when I mentioned, uh, you know, these, these cycles of history is, you know, they're primarily elite driven and, you know, the, the, the way these cycles work is that you had what in George Orwell's book, what he calls, you know, the, the high, the middle and the low. Right. So in, in, in Oceania, in the uh, fictional society of Oceania, the high are the members of the inner party. The middle are the the uh, administrators. So uh, the members of the outer party, uh, which the protagonist, Winston Smith, is, is a part. And then the low are the proles, who are basically the masses and who are mostly more. And this, this comes from, uh, was inspired in part by Orwell's reading of James Burnham. Uh, and, and Burnham's uh, ideas were in turn informed by uh, what, I, what I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Italian school of elite theory, uh, ranging from people like Machiavelli, uh, to uh, guy, this guy Gaetano Mosca and Wilfredo Pareto and these people. And basically they're saying, you know, all of history is the battle between elites. And the moment a regime falters, you know, the moment uh, an economic or social system falters, you're, you're never going to get a revolution from the peasants and the masses below. You're always going to get re a revolution from the next rung of elites, uh, you know, uh, the, you know the, the ones in the middle that work for the high. And so I mean, it, it, it's very, you know, at an intuitive level, I mean, that's, you know, if you look at history, that's pretty much how it works. You know, well, Lenin was a member of the minor aristocracy, Trey Guevara was a doctor, Bin Laden was the son of a billionaire. So it's, it's always these discontented middle elites that are the most effective revolutionaries. Uh, so if you look at American history, you could apply the same lens and it, 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 makes, it makes just as much sense. You know, the colonial elite, uh, you know, bristled uh, at, at the uh, rule of the British Empire and they revolted and that was the American Revolution, right? Uh, in the 1850s, you had the rising sort of uh, commercial uh, elite in the Northeast that didn't want to live under a slave, slave dominated or a slavery dominated republic so that you, know, you had civil war. And then in the New Deal, you had sort of an ascendant 
working class in the north and then sort of these southern and western oligarchies that you know didn't want to live under the rule of northeastern capital anymore so that you know that that would you know the new deal was their revolution so basically in order to have a revolution in the new regime you need a discontented elite or a discontented portion of the subaltern elite who can come in and you know redesign the economic political material institutions of the country in their own image so that they could create a new a new regime a new system of economic production now what what i try to point out in the in the essay is that in the 2010s you know we were supposed to have this revolution at least that's what that's what you know it that's what it looked like what was going to happen but instead populism fizzled out Right. And so you had the left wing populism, which is like the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders crowd, which I, you know, uh, the inspiration for this comes from Julius Krein's uh, brilliant uh, essay, The Real Class War, where, where he basically, you know, attributes the left wing populisms of the last decade to the anxieties of the of the professional managerial class or what, you know, what I refer to as the clerisy. And then you have the right wing uh, sort of equivalent of that, which uh, I, I cite a bunch of articles, uh, one from uh, Patrick Wyman in the Atlantic, where he basically says, you know, the, the, the leaders, the primary constituents of the Trump movement are those, you know, the petty bourgeoisie that you that you mentioned. So it's interesting, you know, this this uh, structure appears to have reproduced itself, you know, uh, you know, George Orwell's, uh, you know, uh, pyramid scheme appears to have reproduced itself perfectly in, in American, uh, you know, recent American history, which I, I found to be quite remarkable. But then the prophesied revolution, at least according to the cycles of history that we've been talking about, it did not materialize, right? It just fizzled out. And uh, instead of, you know, talking about reindustrializing America, rebuilding the working class, stuff like that, here we are talking about Disney and Dr. Seuss and, you know, God knows what. So the reason for that, I figure, was that the middle was warped. The thinking, you know, whereas previous iterations of the subaltern elite would be busy drawing up plans for what a new economic regime would look like, you know, like William Jennings Bryan and, and you know, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the progressive movement, you know, now what, what we have is just the middle elites squabbling in this essentially irreconcilable conflict for moral recognition. So the, the programmatic imagination has been completely warped by this moral and symbolic conflict. And so the middle subaltern elites are stuck in that and there's there's appears to be no way for them to get out. So that's why we have a cultural war, and that's why neoliberalism won't die. It's because the people who are supposed to be killing off neoliberalism are too busy fighting uh, a war of symbols, basically. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose you know, one, um, I mean, a, another dimension of this that's worth touching on is um, that that. Um, Julius also discusses is, you know, that, I mean, if you look at the sort of critiques of the professional managerial class that, you know, many of which I find the, the ones I find persuasive, you know, there's also the point that there's kind of an alliance between that there's a tacit alliance between sort of oligarchs and managers or, you know, between the high and the middle in your terms, right? That, but although that's a kind of fractured alliance, um, that that basically you have, um, you know, roughly in the past few years, you've had this clear kind of configuration of, um, you know, a, a great deal of the sort of, um, you know, leadership of major, you know, Fortune 500 corporations and so on, 
you know, kind of aligning itself with this project of recognition that, you know, has its most, um, you know, again, gets its greatest impetus from this kind of middle minute, you know, sort of professional managerial class realm. But, you know, that basically you had, you know, if you, if you think of like the, the corporate endorsements of Black Lives Matter or of yeah. the, you know, various, um, transgender causes, you know, so, so you seem to have an alignment of a large part of the kind of high with this particular faction of the middle. And so this in some ways has meant that, you know, you have a, I mean, again, I, I think the framing of the whole war on Disney is, um, you know, is in a way, you know, really undersells the, the sort of, um, I, I mean, uh, on, on one hand, exaggerates some, some forms of, of danger or harm, and on the other hand, undersells others. But, you know, you do have um, at least some on the right who seem more willing to confront um, corporate elites precisely because they yeah. see them as, as enemies in the culture war. So I don't know if that, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that, you know, represents, I, I'm, again, I'm sort of skeptical about how far any of those projects will yeah. really go at, at challenging the power of, of any of these corporations. But, you know, it is interesting to see a little bit of sort of this, um, this right sort of middle insurgency, you know, particularly driven by like, you know, angry suburban parents and things like that, that, yeah. that is kind of aligning with these activists who seem, um, who seem to be relishing taking on corporations like Disney. And then, then you do have politicians like DeSantis who are sort of um, willing yeah. to also embrace some of that. But, you know, that's the thing is the people in the middle, you know, whether they are of the PNC or the voter set, this is the thing about post-materialism is these people really do believe that they are, you know, that they are going to have their revolution and that they are going to overthrow, you know, the powers that be, but they're just not capable of it. Right. I mean, the, the PMC, you know, uh, you know, guy who works at McKinsey or, or what have you, you know, like, or, or who may have participated in the, you know, the George Floyd, uh, you know, riots, protests or whatever that was, uh, you know, they really do believe themselves to be participating in a radical movement when they do that. But the, the, there's just no, uh, you, you can't get to a, a material reorganization of society from those premises. If your premises are primarily moral and subjective and based on these things like values and rec your recognition, you're just not gonna get there. And I, I suspect or I fear that these, this so-called insurgency against, uh, you know, woke capitalism on the right is just the same thing, right? You know, that's, and that's, you know, that's the logic of the culture war is whatever genuine resentment and fear and hatred is there from, you know, the middle directed towards the high is just liable to be, uh, you know, redirected towards these symbolic, uh, you know, sort of crusades. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think uh, there's somebody, you know, billionaires are, are doing this on purpose. It's just the nature of the post-materialist or post-modern mindset is that you just start from very different premises. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth recalling, I, I was looking recently into with, with regards to the Disney stuff, again, kind of harking back to this earlier. And I mean, something I'd like to get your thoughts on are the kind of, ebb, is the kind of ebb and flow of the culture war, because 
Yeah. Again, I, you know, was kind of coming of age in the 90s. So I experienced a kind of version of it then, you know, there was, there was, I mean, things were, things were different in a number of ways, but, you know, you did have the first kind of wave of concern about political correctness at that time. So there was some continuity too. Now there was actually this religious right um, boycott of Disney that happened in the, um, starting in 1997. And, you know, it's, it was a bit different because it didn't concern any of the children's entertainment or anything. It, it basically concerned the fact that they had these affiliates producing adult entertainment that were doing things they didn't like. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, particularly interestingly, the heart, you know, Miramax of Harvey Weinstein fame was, um, you know, mm. a, a, a subsidiary of Disney at the time. And, you know, so they they were complaining about some of the movies that the Miramax was making in the '90s, which you know were, in the case of something like um, Pulp Fiction, very um, you know sort of pathbreaking and culturally significant at the time. But you know, the, basically at the time, the religious right was sort of concerned that this company that they saw as in some way validating their values. Yes. had had you know become affiliated with these cultural projects that they found um offensive right and yes. sort of corrosive and you know the, i think they were also it was like the ellen when ellen degeneres came out um you know that was on abc which was also a disney affiliate and so there there are things like that right but then basically the way this boycott ended was disney um um disaffiliated from miramax Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much, you know, the, and and they on the basis of that, like the Southern Baptist Convention announced that it would stop the boycott. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it again, it I think it goes back to your point about po- sort of um, a post material politics that really uh, once they saw their sort of concerns symbolically validated by that move um, and and could thus see themselves as being kind of recognized again. You know that that was kind of enough to uh, placate their concerns. Exactly, and that didn't do anything. Uh, you know, from a uh, you know from an economic perspective, from a, you know, like what did that do? You know, uh, so yeah, no, that's the thing. Is Disney could just as easily placate, you know, this this current uh, you know crisis, uh, this current protest, uh, you know, by doing you know something symbolic like that. I don't know what, but you know. It's, it doesn't have to affect, it won't probably affect the bottom line, but that's the thing about these symbolic things is, is, you know, corporations don't have to surrender, you know, anything of substance really. So another thought I, or I was curious to get a sense of what you think about is, I mean, another way to, and, and that some people have kind of conceived of the relationship between culture war and class war is, yes. you know, it has to do more with the, the relation between the middle and the, the low. And so, I mean, there are a few different ways of framing this. You know, it it seems to me like if you go back to the 90s moment I was talking about before, you had um, this kind of, you know, you basically have the kind of new Democrat coalition sort of embrace this, um, I suppose, this particular version of the sort of traditional American work ethic that, um, you know, might have been more associated with the right. And so it could kind of get on board with, um, welfare reform around yes. this idea that you needed to um, incentivize hard work and not let the sort of um, lower classes um, fall into dependency on the state, right? And so the 
I mean, and so this again was sort of a, it was a moral project, but it, you know, translated into relatively significant sort of economic changes that, that have had some, you know, some notable repercussions. Yes. Um, more, now more recent. So that's, I'd say would be an example of the way the kind of moral, an, an older example of the way the kind of um, moral crusades of the middle can be used to essentially weaken the standing of the, the low at least. Um, yes. And, and so, you know, it, it seems to me there are, one way of conceiving of a lot of these culture war um, um, tendencies on on the sort of left end of the middle is today as a kind of class war waged against the the lower strata, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, basically on one hand, it it often serves this function of of basically um, rendering people no longer. Um, it, I mean, so. There, there are a few different versions of this I can think of, right? But one of them is basically, well, um, y- you know, once you introduce this kind of anti-racist sensibility, then you can just kind of dismiss a large part of the population as racist. And therefore, weirdly, mm-hmm. this kind of idea of, uh, I mean, it, in a way, I've seen it kind of revive, oddly, this older kind of Republican doctrine of personal responsibility, where it's like, you see people sort of saying, well, if they can't get their shit together and learn to not be racist, then, you know, I don't see why we should care about what happens to them. You know, mm-hmm. if, if they yeah. all die, if they all die of opioid overdoses and you see even in, um, you know, in sort of, you know, like medical context, these sort of, um, these uh, you see doctors sort of saying th- th- and, you know, writing articles about how like, well, actually, you know, the opioid epidemic among like rural white Americans is is symptomatic of their privilege. And, you know, mm-hmm. they, they need to overcome their sense of their own privilege and their sort of rage and resentment at their, um, you know, declining social status. And, and so it it becomes this weird kind of transformation of this doctrine of personal responsibility, which can be used to kind of wash your hands of any concern for the, the fate of the lower strata, but it's kind of, um, it's kind of, you know, couched in these new moral doctrines. Yeah. Now, another version of this has been the vaccine discourse recently, right? yeah. that basically you can say, well, I mean, you have all these, again, doctor, like prominent doctors saying on Twitter, well, I don't know if, you know, or, you know, I mean, actually saying, that they don't think that they should have to treat anyone who comes into the hospital who is not vaccinated, right? That they think they should literally mm-hmm. be able to um, to deny them care. Um, and and again, it's kind of often put in this term of like, well, you know, they're so privileged and lacking in concern for others that they put themselves in this position. So I think they should just have to suck it up. Yeah. So it, it again is this kind of new moral doctrine, but in effect, what it, 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 is a, a new way for the middle to kind of wash its hands of any responsibility for the, the lower strata and their fate. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's, that could be, you know, that, that's one way to look at it. There's another way to look at it, which is, you know, these, these morality plays. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm calling you from Canada, right? So I'm watching, you know, we have our own, you know, as you saw with the truckers, we have our own kind of, you know, these kinds of cultural war disagreements about, you know, the vaccine and everything. But I, you know, I, I don't think it is as, even even with what you saw in, 
with the truckers, I don't think in general the Canadian experience has been as polarized uh, as the American experience. Uh, but you know, I think that a lot of these morality plays, whether that is the pro lockdown or the anti lockdown, and I see both of those as competing morality plays. I see them less as a device to shackle the low and more as a device for the middle to, you know, for members of the middle to compete with each other, uh, basically. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, uh, a match between, you know, the middle, like, you know, like we're so smart, these other guys are idiots. Like I see that more as a, as a, a dispute between the subaltern elites rather than, rather than a, a way to shackle the low, but you know, uh, I, I could be wrong. I don't know, but that's, that's sort of the sense that I get. Yeah. I mean, I would say it, what part of what it does is it again, allows for this kind of, um, this moral posturing. That's also a kind of, um, excuse for lack of concern, right. Where you can, yeah. you can basically say, well, I don't care about, again, you know, people dying of opioid overdoses because they deserve it, basically. Um, yeah. Or like if a red state, you know, is like, uh, you know, has higher death rates, you can say, you know, the governor of that state is such an idiot because he didn't, you know, he didn't do this. Or, you know, conversely, if there's uh, some new story about a college in some blue state that where they have a crazy, you know, masking requirement where, you know, you can't ever show your face, you know, the people in the red states will go, look at these idiots over there and, uh, you know, at, at Yale or Princeton or whatever it is, you know, they're living in a totalitarian state. So, yeah, I really do see it as more of a, a dispute between the, the subalterns rather than, uh, rather than uh, a device to control the low. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think, <laughs> In some sense, it seems like your um, your assessment, which accords with uh, Julius's, is is that you know part of what we're seeing is that the low has has simply been kind of excluded, largely excluded from you know any first of all any means of sort of meaningful political representation. Yes. Right, and therefore are are essentially you know largely outside of the bounds of of much of what we take to be kind of going on in the world because yes yes um and so so we sort of get these indications through things like the opioid crisis that that there are things that are really bad out there that are happening yeah but um, yeah but but they're they're in some sense just happening outside of the bounds of of much of what takes up our sort of common discourse simply because of that kind of exclusion from representation yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I really do sympathize with the, uh, the Burnham view that it's, you know, a lot of this is just, you know, a lot of history is just reducible to squabbles between, you know, the elites. And, you know, I wish that, you know, that weren't the case, but that's, I, I, that's how I, you know, that's how I see uh, things. Right. Yeah. So um, I think you so I'm just going to read part of your essay that, that sure. I think kind of sums up a number of these points, um, and then I wanted to ask you one other thing about it, and then perhaps we could touch on um, your other your two other pieces I wanted to discuss before we finish up. So the, sure the section I was going to read is um, by diverting the energy and attention of the two classes of subaltern elites into an endless zero sum conflict of symbols, identities, and lifestyles taking place in an immaterial realm of unfettered subjectivity, the culture war robs the middle of the capacity to think in concrete material, structural and institutional terms. It thereby infantilizes and paralyzes the subaltern elites in their place. 
and renders them wholly incapable of mounting a revolution against the high. This is the theory of the culture war. In Weber's scheme, the middle is trapped in a state of pure value rationality and left without any access to the instrumental kind, finalizing the divorce between the moral and the material and making progress beyond the present stagnation impossible to conceive. Yes. So I, I think that's a, a pretty um, good and succinct statement of your thesis. Yes. Um, one thing that I thought it would be nice to go back to is the way that you're using Orwell, because I think in some ways it, you know, at least in terms of the most familiar notions of what 1984 is about, you know, which mm -hmm. is, is kind of this, you know, top down, um, the, you know, this essentially top down to totalitarianism embodied in the figure of Big Brother. Yes. Right. But but in a sense, what you're describing here is a situation in which the sort of ideological recontainment of of conflict and and, you know, prevention of um, of any kind of challenge to the system is actually taking place largely in this kind of this realm of a kind of um, horizontal pseudo conflict. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, I think people tend to associate 1984 with this image of a kind of, vert you know, a sort of vertically structured repressive sure. apparatus. So, you know, how, how are people maybe missing part of the point of 1984 and how is it actually, you know, surprisingly relevant for the situation that you're describing? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the society of 1984, you'll find that, you know, I think he says about 70%, 80% of population are, are proles, you know, the proletariat, the low. You know, they live in the proletarian zones and they're essentially not affected by the surveillance apparatus. Like the, the party does not care about, them, right? So Winston goes into the proletarian zones and they're out, you know, they're drinking beer at the pub and it's like, you know, I mean, they're, they're miserable. They live in poverty. Uh, they're they're economically miserable, but psychologically, you know, they're basically living in their own world, and they're not a part of politics, right? So that's that's the thing is is it's not the totalitarianism of 1984 is basically limited to the high and the middle. Uh, that's about it, and so that's again going back to the Burnham theory of of elites being the the main drivers of politics. Uh, so yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. And uh, yeah, there's the the ongoing, the never-ending war between Oceania and the two other uh, powers uh, as a means of, 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 you know, stabilizing society to ensure that no political change is ever possible. And, uh, you know, I mean, Orwell, you know, as, as you know, as many people tend to forget, but that Orwell was a, he was a, you know, uh, a lefty at the end of the day, right? And he, he wrote this very interesting uh, review, this dual review of Friedrich Hayek's uh, Road to Serfdom, and this other book by a far-left member of the Labour Party uh, named Kony Ziliakis. Uh, so he was comparing free market fundamentalism and statist totalitarianism. And, you know, remarkably, he, he, he decides that free market fundamentalism you know, will probably be a worse tyranny than state totalitarianism, which is, you know, incredible for, to us, right? And of course, he was living at a time when the world was being uh, taken over by these totalitarian empires. So of course, he was writing about that. That was foremost on his mind. But it's interesting to me that, you know, in this little review, this little book review, he says, you know, no, I think actually free market fundamentalism could possibly be even worse because it's, it's you know, I think the word he says, it's, uh, you know, 
more irresponsible than the state or something like that. But this is a very interesting insight. I didn't even know that, you know, before doing this research that Orwell had ever, you know, engaged with Hayek, but here it is. Right, and he also engages uh, somewhat critically with Burnham, but um, but also seems to kind of learn from him, right? Yeah, he he. So he basically he uh, he he denounces a lot of Burnham's uh, writing as being kind of like he accuses Burnham of power worship uh, because morally he does not agree with this notion that all history is driven by elites. Like he, as a, as a democratic socialist, he he probably found it. You know, very distasteful, and, that, and that's why in the novel, you know, Winston says, uh, you know, if there's any hope, it is with a proles, right? Uh, but he adopts the elitist framework anyway, and uses that as the basis of the of the power structure of 1984, uh, even though personally he probably did, uh, you know, sympathize with it too much. So, again, the title of your essay is "Victory Is Not Possible." Um, it's a quotation from um, Goldstein, uh, Emmanuel Goldstein's book. Goldstein is the sort of fictional semi, um, is the fictionalized sort of semi Trotsky like figure from 1984. Yes, yes, he's sort of the arch traitor of Oceania. Right, and so he um, he states, "Victory is not possible. The war is not meant to be won. It's meant to be continuous, and its object is not victory over Eurasia or East Asia." let's keep the very structure of society intact. Yeah. So, you know, that's uh, applied domestically or sort of internally to countries. Um, although, you know, different versions of it are playing out sort of internationally, essentially how you read the function of the culture war as, as ultimately stabilizing, right. That it, yes. it, um, it's, it produces a kind of, um, a kind of illusion of, of, um, you know, immense things being at stake, but in, but in fact, the function of it is, is finally stabilizing, right? Because it, because it prevents any credible challenge from the middle to the high and thus foresells any possibility of a revolution. Exactly. And, uh, you know, he says the three super states of the fictional world, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia, are not fundamentally interested in winning this war or conquering each other because that would that would upset this balance of power. So they just they just need the other enemy, the other side to exist in order to fight this war as a means of keeping their societies, you know, exactly as as they are. And I mean, I see this a little bit with um there was just this profile in Vanity Fair of the sort of new. Oh my God. Yeah. I read that. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting to me, right? Because somebody like, I mean, so Curtis Yarvin is obviously also influenced by Burnham and by the, the Italian um, elite theorists. Right. Um, So, you know, in in a sense, these guys are, you know, if if you want to think about um, who I, I suppose is is sort of trying to intervene in a way that might be informed by a similar sensibility. You know, it's these kind of guys who are part of the Peter Thiel verse. But, you know, again, when I look at what they're actually doing on the campaign trail and so on, it it honestly doesn't seem particularly um it 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 yeah it does not seem to me they're they're really breaking with the sort of generalized culture war strategy of their no not at all and party. uh not at all and 
you know, I, I actually read that piece as well. And I just, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can, uh, you know, express all of my thoughts on it, but uh, I'll, I'll say this, uh, you know, there's this notion of the new right. And I remember the piece was very sort of going out of its way to say, you know, these are not your father's conservatives. You know, these are not the Reagan conservatives of your, you know, these are fundamentally a different species. And, and I, I contest that because, you know, uh, this, this version of the new right, they are as obsessed with defeating the administrative state as, as Reagan's conservatives or as Robert Taft's conservatives, right? There's all this talk about how the new right, no, no, we're different because we want to take over the state and use it for uh, for our own ends, you know. But that's not what I saw in that piece, you know. In that piece, they were talking about, I don't know who uh, said it, I can't remember, but it was the uh, acronym, right? uh, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but it's RAGE, right? Retire all government employees. Do you remember that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, and this shows you the, uh, you know, in, in my essay, I talk about, you know, if Orwell accused Burnham of power worship, you, uh, the present subaltern elites can be accused of the opposite, which is fear of power, aversion to power. Uh, I call it, I come up with a you know, high fancy Greek, uh, you know, word for it, kratophobia, you know, kratos being power, rule of, phobia, fear of, so fear of power. You know, the, uh, you know, underneath all of this anti-elite discourse, it, it's not a it's not a drive to take over and become the new elite. It's just th this this enjoyment of this subaltern position. You know, we want to be the underdog forever, right? And we see that with the aversion to pol you know matters of public policy and governance and administration, which you would assume would be the the interest of a would-be elite. All of these things are totally ignored by the new right, you know? And it, it, this, was, this, this was what struck me the most was there was this phrase that I forget which one of them said it, but de-wokeification, they called it, right? We have to seize the, uh, the, you know, the, the institutions of society and you know, uh, de-wokeify it. Or, and he, it's, this person compared it to de-bathification, right? And they were gonna basically retire, fire every. Do you remember how de-bathification worked? Jeff, <laughs> right? Um, what, roughly, ha what, yeah, right. what happened there, right? So the, the uh, this is the same mentality that the George Bush, George W. Bush administration had, right? They, they went into Iraq, they defeated Saddam, and then they said, okay, we don't need the Iraqi administrative state anymore, you know, because remember, if, in order to be a civil servant in Iraq at the time, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party, right? So they said, great, we don't need this administrative state in Iraq. Let's just blow it up. So let, let's fire everybody who's a member of the Ba'ath Party, which is basically the entire professional civil service of Iraq, right? So the whole country went to hell. All of the trained professional civil servants, right? What did they do? They, they joined the insurgency, right? And then so you had this country that was an anarchy and then all of the trained professional civil servants, they joined the insurgency. And then 10 years later, when ISIS, uh, you know, comes out of the woodwork, you know, they start, you know, they're murdering people, they're throwing homosexuals off the, the roofs of buildings. But, you know, the Iraqi people at the time, I remember reading the journalistic accounts, they were like, you know, say what you want about these fanatics at ISIS, but by golly, they have some, you know, they're very good administrators. You know, the ISIS, uh, you know, pension system is much more, you know, effective than the Baghdad government's pension system. And, you know, the, the, the tax system is so much more uh, superior, you know, basically ISIS was making the trains run on time because all of the administrators that had been fired by Paul Bremer, it, you know, uh, as part of debathification, they ended up working for the insurgents and they ended up going to ISIS, right? So, you know, it's basically the Paul Bremer program 
of state annihilation, but applied to the United States. You know what what Paul Bremer did to the Iraqi government that you right now appears, uh, you know, dead set on doing to the United States. Which you know maybe that's poetic justice that the uh, you know that, that that's going to happen. But it's uh, you know how how did they expect to rule the country without the aid of a professional civil service? That to me is 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 mind boggling. Right, and so. You know, what you saw under the Trump administration was that, I mean, roughly, they essentially had to, in order for, um, I mean, on every level, right, because there was essentially not a sort of competent elite or sort of counter elite to introduce into the um, into the sort of apparatuses of of governance. Um, There was there ended up being a kind of combination of deference to um, the sort of, you know, basically the the very kind of Republican swamp that Trump, um, you know, sold himself entirely as a break from because that's who would actually be able to staff the, you know, relevant positions. Yeah. Um, and, And then on the other hand, a sort of reliance on agencies that were essentially hostile to much of what he was trying to do and therefore you know, basically prevented it from prevented any of it from actually happening. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he wanted to get rid of the, you know, the entrenched swamp, but he, he didn't really have anybody that he could replace, you know, that he could, that he could govern with. So he just, he basically, you know, he went in and he outsourced all of the, uh, uh, all of the policy leadership to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. And you know, he, his big thing was a tax cut. And, uh, you know, uh, um, maybe we can move on to my, the, you know, I can start talking about the immigration piece a little bit. Yes, the, absolutely. The big thing that I, that I realized was that the same dynamic by which he forfeited leadership, you know, in, in fiscal, in economic, in, you know, economic policy, you know, he stopped uh, uh, being a populist and he became a, a run-of-the-mill conventional Orthodox Republican. The same thing happened in immigration, which to me was shocking because I thought this was his main thing that he cared about. But, you know, I cite the, uh, this report from the Houston Chronicle that basically shows deportations, I think, of illegal immigrants actually went down under Trump. You know, like uh, he was more open, he was more open borders uh, than Obama, you know. <laughs> uh, and and the, the most remarkable thing to me was when, you know, all of these opportunities came up for him to implement this policy that I'm, that I'm interested in called mandatory E-Verify, right? Which for those of your listeners who don't know, it's basically, uh, you know, you're going to have to verify the legal status of anybody before hiring, right? And we're here in Canada, uh, it's, it's part and parcel of the system of the law. Like nobody talks about it because it's so embedded. And this is the most effective uh, way to enforce the immigration law, right? Because if, if, if you're an illegal immigrant, you can't get work, right? You know, they asked Trump, I think it was in 2018, you know, on Fox News, Mr. President, do you support mandatory verify, right? And he goes, you know, uh, you know, in theory, you know, I do, but, you know, it's, you have to be practical. So he basically poo-pooed the one policy that, you know, was going to be a thousand times more effective than a wall, you know, because as I show in the piece, uh, you know, most of the illegal uh, immigrant arrivals come from uh, visa overstays, not illicit border crossings. So a wall is not going to do much uh, to, to, to you know, handle that problem. So you should really be more interested in mandatory verify, but Trump didn't care. And not only that, they later found that you know, he had been uh, 
well, this is not news, but he, that he'd been employing, you know, illegal immigrants in his in his various properties, you know, hotels, resorts, uh, you know. So it's shocking to me. It's shocking to me that it's not really about fixing immigration. You just want to look tough for cultural war purposes. You just, you know, culturally want to be perceived as, uh, you know, an immigration restrictionist, but it has nothing to do with the reality of, of actually enforcing immigration law. Yeah, one thing I remember is that, you know, one of his biggest, um, <clears throat> one of the things he did when campaigning and then subsequently was kind of highlight these families. I can't remember, there's some term they came up for them, but like who had had a, a member who was yes, yes. by a, by a, a, an undocumented immigrant, right? Yes. And I mean, it, it, it was interesting, right? Because this seemed, you know, I mean, I think it goes to your point about the right kind of adopting left culture war tactics, right? Because you you basically create this victim class and then yes. you, you frame your policy around the need to, I mean, on one hand, protect, but also to acknowledge or recognize the grievances of this victim class, right? And so so the, the sort of moral case for the policies becomes well, look at these, these people who have, you know, who have lost a family member to, to this. Um, we have to sort of recognize their pain and suffering by doing this, right? And, and so, you know, part of what's interesting about this is that it, um, you know, it's, I mean, it seems clear to me that plenty of Trump's support, you know, from people who were relatively, you know, who weren't sort of ideologically fanatical was that, you know, they they were probably people who saw some direct impact on their own ability to earn a living from either, you know, jobs being offshored or, um, you know, a huge influx of immigrants or a combination of the two. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a real thing. It's one of these things that, you know, basically nobody really talks about or has much awareness of in the kind of you know, um, the sort of middle level um, media um, <clears throat> sort of universe. But, you know, it's a real thing. It was a legitimate concern that people had and continue to have. And um, it, you know, it, it definitely drove some of his support that they actually had somebody who was saying this, right? And, and so what's interesting, though, is that instead of um, framing his, his arguments, I mean, it's not to say that he didn't mention those things, but, but it's, it's notable to me that he framed it instead around this kind of safetyist messaging that like somehow letting these people in is going to make, put your family in danger. And also this kind of moral, you know, this kind of moral bludgeon of saying, here are these victims whose struggles we have to validate. Yeah, it's exactly like the uh, the war between Oceania and its enemies, right? The, the this is this is really interesting. You know, I think the most terrifying thing that could happen to the uh, the Trumpian restrictionist right, you know, the Stephen Millers and the Steve Bannons, the worst thing that could happen to them would be for immigration to be definitively resolved as an issue, right? Because that would rob them of their you know their their reason for getting up in the morning. Right? They need this sort of eternal state of siege between America and, 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 you know, Mexico or whatever. They need that narrative to, you know, politically, emotionally, psychologically to, to keep on going. So they might maybe want to manage the immigration problem uh, piecemeal, but they do not. They definitely do not want to resolve it because if they did, they would have done these very simple reforms that I talked about at the piece, primarily mandatory verify 
uh, and certain other things. But, uh, you know, if, if immigration were ever to be reduced to, you know, the mere administration of things like that would be like it is here in Canada, like that would be the greatest nightmare for, for these people because they just would not have a, you know, they would have one less emotional psychological narrative by which to justify their existence, basically. Right. And I mean, it's interesting that, so yeah, your, your piece sort of, um, you know, is centered around this, this comparison between the Canadian system and the American system, which, you know, couldn't be more different in, in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, the, the points about the Canadian, I mean, one interesting point you note is that, you know, you sort of hear positive things from both right and left about the Canadian system that, you know, the the left will sort of um, praise the, emphasis placed on multiculturalism and so on, whereas the right will praise the um, emphasis on skilled immigration and things like that. Yes. But of course, neither of them actually really want to, um, to implement anything like what exactly. Canada has. Right? For, for opposite, you know, for different reasons, right? The left loves the diversity, but it won't go for the, the, uh, you know, the sort of discriminating, you know, not, not racially or ethnically discriminating, but discriminating based on skills. Like they're never, they're not going to go for that. Right. The right loves the security of this system, but it won't go for the, you know, it won't, well, you know, the, the small business petty bourgeois, you know, constituency that we talked about. I mean, these are some of the most, uh, you know, enthusiastic uh, users of unauthorized undocumented labor. Right. So, you know, there's this Bloomberg article, you know, Man, red states with mandatory e-verify apparently do not, you know, barely enforce, you know, the system. So these are supposedly the most conservative areas of the country, but they barely enforce the laws that they do have about mandatory e-verify. And you know, Ron DeSantis, I, I documented the piece. He he he, pro- he ran on mandatory e-verify in, in, when he was running in 2018, but then he goes in and then he implements this very qualified version of it, where uh, only businesses that are going to do co- contracts with the state government have to show we have to you know abide by mandatory verify and one of the republican lawmakers of florida was like i thought we were going to get universal mandatory verify not like this fake optionally verify so it's funny you know the same ultra conservative gentry class that are supposedly the drivers of trumpian nationalism you know like they're the ones that are the most dependent on illegal labor so so they they want the emotional validation of this narrative that they're fighting for american sovereignty but fundamentally, they're not going to do anything, uh, you know, material about it, right? Yeah, and I mean, it, it does strike me there's sort of an asymmetry in that, you know, the, the reason that, um, you know, it, it's at least on the, in the current sort of ideological panorama, it's, it's unlikely that a sort of democratic administration would be able to shift towards something like a Canadian system um, is, is sort of that, you know, th- there would be an, an immense ideological outrage on the part of this kind of PMC class, yes. right? which, which basically, yes. I mean, I ro- which has such a sort of nonsensical view of all of this stuff. I mean, another, you know, Angela Nagel's piece on open borders, yes, also from American Affairs, you know, the reaction to that sort of perfectly captured it because um, they they sort of insist on this ideological adherence to you know, this kind of open borders maximalism, which, which has no actual policy substance, right? In effect, yes. what it just means is we have to continue doing whatever the current thing is, which is not open borders, but that, you know, <laughs> that, so it's, it's a perfect situation for them in a sense, because they can, 
they can kind of frame this kind of their their whole argument around this utopian demand, which is obviously completely implausible. Yes. But nevertheless allows them, puts them in this position to kind of, um, de- you know, demonize anyone who comes short of it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, in that piece, I, out- I, sp- I spent like the second half of the piece outlining a left wing program. Very, it's very specific policy detail, a left-wing program that can actually outflank the Trumpian right on immigration. Uh, and it's very, I mean, you, you read the piece, right? It's, I really yeah. go to great lengths. You know, yeah. the new, the new, I call it the new alliance for progress. It's this big you know, vision of the future for, for Latin America. But you know, uh, right now, it's unlikely that the left will, will, ha- you know, will be able to do that politically. But I think uh, somewhere along down the line, you know, certain trends within the Democratic Party uh, having to do with things like, you, you must have read uh, David Shore or, or heard of, you know, this thing called popularism, which is basically, you know, tone down the woke stuff, tone down the, you know, the, uh, you know, the bleeding heart stuff. Let's focus on things that are actually popular. And we saw uh, an illustration of that when Biden at the State of the Union, he said, you know, fund the police, right? So that's an example of him the president biden going against you know over the heads of the pmc you know constituencies of his own party and saying no no actually the american people you know want to fund the police so you could imagine a similar move from a democratic uh, leader maybe biden or maybe someone else going no no, no let, you know we're going to go over the heads of the bleeding hearts in our party and we're going to establish immigration reform and you're going to thank me for it later because this will totally discredit the Trumpian right. So I'm I'm hopeful that the, the center left in America will wake up to this one day. Right. And then on the right side, you sort of have this phenomenon of um, basically, you know, back in the Bush era, you had Bush kind of arguing for a sort of, you know, immigration reform. Um, you, you, I mean, obviously you go back to when basically Reagan did um you know an immense sort of amnesty that legalized three the status of three million or so people um so but but in the bush era you had this kind of problem that i mean was in a way the the sort of mirror image which was that basically the the republican base kind of revolted against um these immigration reform efforts and so that was part of what brought us Trump, but, you know, the, but on the other hand, the, the real significance of that was again, that what was preserved was the status quo kind of completely dysfunctional. So, so both the kind of open borders utopians and the sort of Republican restrictionists. Yes. I mean, going along with your argument in the other piece, the main effect of their outrage against um, anybody who goes against them within their own coalition is, is to essentially ensure that the current, sort of totally dysfunctional system that everybody claims not to like for yes. one reason or another stays in place, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more intense the the cultural disposition, the more impotent uh, materially. Uh, and that's, you know, that what's true with, with immigration is also true in, in you know, every other uh, policy area, so. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, I think the, I, I, I would, you know, recommend people read your piece. It's, um, as you said, it's also a good part of it is given over to kind of practical recommendations, yeah. as well as a sort of overview of what, um, you know, what seems essentially effective and functional about the Canadian system as it currently exists, right? Yeah, and, and particularly yeah. this interesting point that you you sort of argue that, um, 
there's a sort of culturally unifying quality of the project because it essentially creates a kind of multicultural coalition of people with similar sort of social and economic values. Yeah, in Canada. So if the reason multiculturalism works in Canada uh, is because it's purely, almost purely aesthetic. It's all, you know, it's, it, you know, people criticize, uh, you know, multiculturalism is because it's just sort of like folk dances and, you know, different cuisines. And, you know, the reason that that works is because at a functional level or beneath the aesthetic level, people are practically all the same, right? If you look at the middle classes in the third world, in, in you know, Asia and Latin America, they're all pretty much the same. They're like the middle classes that existed in Europe and America, you know, in sort of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. It's sort of like, uh, I call it globalized Calvinism because everything that Max Weber wrote in the Protestant epic is basically alive in these uh, rising middle classes from Asia. So, you know, it, it, you, you get these very kind of, uh, you know, thrifty uh, entrepreneurial people and they all, you know, congregate. So it, it, there's no genuine material disparity between how they live and how the rest of the society lives, right? Whereas in Europe, what, what did the Europeans do, right? They, they got like, uh, you know, they got people from their colonies, basically, uh, to move to the, to the metropole in, you know, the 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, as as foreign, cheap foreign labor, temporary labor, guest workers, guest arbiters, the Germans, uh, you know, call it. And they basically, they never left. And they were, there was never any attempt to, to integrate them socioeconomically or culturally. So what, what do you, what do you get when you have that, right? Two or three generations down the line, you're going to have ghettos, right? And America, I see as sort of in between the Canadian and the European example, where America, of course, is also an immigrant nation. And you've had, you know, a great uh, history of integrating immigrants from all over the world. But at the same time, if you go the European path of just importing large waves of, 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 of people from, uh, you know, very different socioeconomic contexts for the purposes of supplying cheap labor, you're going to end up in the same balkanized society. So that's, that's sort of my, my uh, you know, read of it. Yeah, and I mean, I tend to wonder if, if there is a kind of possibility of the, the type of reform that you lay out in the piece if, if you know, part of a, a large part of the constituency of that may be these kind of um, these immigrant, you know, established immigrant communities, which are prosperous, um, you know, often suburban in the U.S., which, you know, recently have sort of been rejecting certain, you know, of the sort of cultural dogmas of the the um, the sort of democratic coalition. Right. And are are now seen as um you know, potentially, um, you know, I mean, much more up for grabs as far as the, the two parties go. Yes. yes. Um, but but are also probably less um, less interested in the sort of I mean, you know, so they're they're less interested in or, you know, and find very little appeal in the kind of um, the the sort of left culture war dogmas, but at the same time are probably less likely to be susceptible to the kind of standard fare of of sort of right culture war red meat um, yeah so so because i wonder if these kind of reforms if they can come about will be you know partly propelled by the this the increasing political significance of that that particular sector yeah well if you look at these these uh, immigrant communities because they are 
you know, they belong to that kind of Calvin, I, I, you know, I, like I said, I call it Calvin, globalized Calvinism. You know, they're basically at the point where, you know, they haven't reached the post-materialist threshold yet. You know, so they're where, they're, they are where the Western middle class was prior to the 1960s, right? So, so yeah, you know, you're right. They are, they are the perfect constituency with which to start uh, talking about these, these reforms. So, I mean, maybe to, to finish up, we could talk about your piece for Palladium. Sure. That, you know, is, is itself immensely um, rich and complex. So I don't think we'll be able to cover all of it, but, you know, it, it, it interests me that you, you know, bring up this idea of a kind of global Calvinism Yes. And a sort of notion of, um, uh, you know, that, that the Canadian, the sort of Canadian multicultural order has a set of underlying, again, kind of social and cultural values that basically pertain to a kind of global striving middle class, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that have sort of, um, you know, uh, taken up, you know, versions of the same general set of aspirations and sort of the same broad habitus, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's interesting here is that, um, you know, I would think of this kind of Calvinism as tied to this sort of earlier, you know, literate culture that we heavily associate with Protestantism, right? Yes, yes. And, and so in this final piece we'll discuss, you kind of counterpose, you know, drawing on McLuhan, the, um, the sort of literate, um, the, the sort of universe of literacy, the Gutenberg galaxy, and then the sort of post-literate uh, mediatic universe that, it, that is, has, um, in McLuhan's time, was sort of beginning to succeed it and um, at this point has, has significantly kind of displaced the earlier literate um, yeah. world, although the two are still kind of operating in a complex kind of interaction with each other. So, you know, it's interesting to me that this, that the way you frame this notion of a kind of more stable order that you see as, as represented in at least certain aspects of the Canadian system, you know, also seems rooted in these kind of lit, these cultural regimes that um, we associate with the era of the sort of high era of literacy, right? Yeah. Or things that threaten that, which sort of have to do with this, um, that also have to do with the the sort of post-material economy um, and sort of moral economy are are also tied to the the post-literate um, sort of media landscape. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is if you go to the churches in you know in Canada, and, and I'm sure it's the same in, in many cities in the United States. You know, Catholic churches and you know evangel in, in certain evangelical churches. You know, the, the pews are just full of immigrants. And, you know, uh, sir, you know, here in, you know, in Canada, you know, Catholic churches, you know, would, would have, you know, very, you know, there'd be no attendance if it wasn't for all of these immigrants from the Philippines and, you know, Latin America, you know, so it's interesting that, that you know, that, that this literate sort of, uh, you know, uh, traditional religion is sustained by these kinds of groups. And then, you know, the, you know, the, the, the people that, the, you know, the Western non-immigrant people they're not into that kind of religion, right? They're into what new age stuff they're into. So they're kind of going back, you know, to where things were. So I, you could almost say that postmodernism resembles pre-modernism, right? Uh, so that's, 
that is, you know, a very interesting thing that McLuhan noticed. And he said, you know, he, he used the word tribalization a lot. And uh, he said, you know, our kids are becoming third world by virtue of their exposure to this new, you know, oral uh, environment, oral media, electronic media environment. So people are, you know, literally becoming retribalized, meaning they're going back to these sort of pagan uh, ways of, of viewing the world, which is very antithetical to the monotheistic, you know, literate religions uh, that, that, that we're familiar with. Right. And, you know, this also sort of relates to, um, I mean, it, it relates to a number of themes from the other essay, right? Another one would be some kind of notion of linear progress, right? Yeah, that, so that, yeah, that becomes impossible to sustain in, in the postmodern, just as much as in the pre-modern, right? You need the implements of modernity in order to have a notion of progress. Otherwise, you don't. Right. And so, you know, the, the sort of incapacity to imagine um, progress in any, I mean, I, I was thinking here of, um, you know, Peter Thiel has this framework of like, um, in de of definite optimism, indefinite optimism, definite pessimism, and indefinite pessimism. Okay. Um, so basically, the I think definite optimism is the the worldview of progress, right? And yes. So yes. it's it's in other words that you have a plan, right? That that you have aspirations and things that you want to achieve as a society. Yes. And you also have specific and concrete plans to achieve those things. So you know, it seems to me a lot of your concerns are with the ways that, you know, we, you know, particularly kind of today's elites seem not only to lack those things, but to have a kind of profound, you know, lack of interest in, in how they would go about, um, how, yeah. how they would go about developing such plans. Yeah. And going back to the, you know, the, the culture war thing is material progress becomes impossible if you do not have this framework. Right. So that's why, you know, in this uh, culture of atomization and fragmentation where everybody has a lifestyle brand, you know, but nobody has a program they can agree on. You know, this is this is what, you know, keeps me up at night. You know, just where does this end? You know, where this this endless material stagnation and cultural fragmentation and nobody can come up. The people that are supposed to be uh, coming, uh, you know, coming together to form a coalition, you know, the gentry and the clerisy, as I say, can't do it because even though they have overlapping material interests, their moral and cultural subjectivities will not let them work together, right? So, you know, it's, I, in, the, in the McLuhan piece, I use the term de-civilization. You know, so basically that's where we're headed. And, you know, whatever the forces of progress and modernity have now shifted to, I don't know, China. China has that and the West no longer has it. So, uh, you know, that, that's, what, that's, you know, that's where we're headed. Yeah, you and you know you have some great points as well about how um, this, you know, what <laughs> idea sort of ideological um, orientations are. You know, they, they become. I mean, this this relates to what I was saying about open borders, right? They they, yeah. they become detached from any sense of any kind of meaningful ex executable plan and they just yeah. they just become these kind of mantras that get repeated yeah. right they become yeah. these kind of almost magical spells that you try to um to issue and you, you know you actually compare this to these kinds of pre, you know phenomena in pre-literate 
cultures, right? That, I mean, you say um, today's slogans are ethereal and talismanic. They're magic words meant to act as tribal markers and spiritual fortifiers. Rather than advertising an actionable legislative agenda, they're self-enclosed signifiers, advertisements without a tangible product. And so, and then you say, you know, even for the slogans that sound like policy objectives, the enactment of actual laws and policies has become quite secondary. So, you know, and you bring up, uh, you know, everything from make America great again to, you know, build the wall to, you know, Black Lives Matter, abolish ICE, defund the police, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the thing that, I mean, I wrote that early 2021, uh, right after January 6th. But later that year, they came up with Let's Go Brandon, which is literally, it doesn't, you know, this this proved my point, you know, yeah. better than anything. It's just, it just doesn't mean anything. It's just, it means I support you know, they're, they're Trump and the Republican Party. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about anything, right? So slogans, as I say in the piece, have always existed. But if you look at the, you know, the again, going back to Bill, you know, William Jennings Bryan, his slogans, you know, the cross of gold, they meant, they signified a very specific thing. Whereas, you know, let's go Brandon is just, it's just an empty signifier. So that's that's where we're headed. That's where we are as a, as a civilization. Right. And I think, you know, this, again, it, it, it shows the, um, you know, an argument that I've long made, which is that, um, you know, I mean, that I initially sort of started trying to make publicly when people started talking about sort of the post-truth era and so on after yeah. Trump, which again was a kind of, um, re- it was a kind of revival of some of the earlier culture war um, concerns of the '90s, right, where the the sort of panic about the effect, the um, influence of postmodernism and postmodern theory, and so you know, I guess the thing that I've long sustained is that you know th- that if you actually look at the postmodern theorists themselves, you know what they're arguing is that this phenomena is brought about by, I mean, th- they're describing social phenomena brought about by material, technological, and mediatic shifts. Right. And so when they say something like, you know, um, <laughs> uh, when, they, you know, when they talk about sort of um, signifiers becoming detached from the signified and sort of, you know, language no longer be, being a matter of meaning. Right. Yeah. This isn't yeah. this. Is, this is a descriptive um, attempt to capture, you know, what our sort of technologies and media are bringing about. Um, yes, yes. And, and, and so I think the way you captured here is very um, in sync with sort of what I've been trying to argue, which is just that, um, you know, that, that these, these, you know, I mean, historically, you sort of had the right, you know, the right and center kind of villainizing these sort of thinkers for having these influences. Um you know, when I think, you know, that the example of it that comes up most today would be like the gender, all the stuff about gender, right? Which, yes. which I think, again, is, is, is in a way the perfect encapsulation of, of what we've been talking about, right? Because it's a, it's a project that, um, you know, ha- has become utterly central to politics, right? Yes. But it's, it's um, you know, it, it's sort of actual material significance is extremely small, right? Yes, um, yes. But it, it's become the, the fundamental driver of these kind of debates around identity and recognition, right? Yes. And, and what it tends to involve is on one side, the kind of aggressive assertion of certain kind of mantras of the sort that you described. Right? Yes. 
Um, and then on the other hand, the attempts to kind of um, reassert alternative mantras, right? Yes, yes. But, you know, as, as soon as you get into the, you know, whether sort of trans women are women, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Um, but then, you know, the opposition to that simply becomes kind of trapped in the, this kind of cycle of incantations. Right? Yes, yes. And that's and exactly what they are. And, and in yeah. fact, what it does is, is makes this whole project even more central, um, right? And, you know, yeah. if that's the kind of, at least for the, the next five minutes, the sort of major culture war dispute of the moment. Yes, you yes. Know, part, of, part of the rights function here is to make this issue all the more central right um is, is and is to help basically to help the cultural left maintain it at the center of politics yeah no they they're, this the right is very much interested in keeping this up uh you know because uh, at, a, at a basic political level uh you know it's 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 worked to their advantage to keep to keep you know to keep the uh, focus on these kinds of issues and at a deeper, you know, epistemic level, you know, they really are not able to do anything else, right? They, they can't shift the conversation to political economy or anything like that because they themselves cannot do it. So they're just happy to keep on, you know, keep on piling up the different slogans and incantations. But, you know, what, you know, again, it, I, I guess I, f I find myself again arguing with these people who want to just kind of turn it into this, um, oh, we have to blame Foucault or something and... You know, yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I have plenty of criticisms of Foucault myself, but yeah. it's just such a misguided project because, you know, what we're seeing here is, I mean, the, the gender ideology, right. Yes. Um, is the product of the, the mediatic shifts that you're describing. Yes. And, um, you know, this kind of epidemiological approach where you see it as some kind of mind virus that if you can just trace it to the origin and then eradicate yeah. the origin, you can get yeah. rid of it, just yeah. doesn't account for the way that it's sustained by the sort of post-literate epistemic exactly. um, environment yeah. that you're describing. Yeah, there's no ability or willingness to reckon with the larger structural factors. So they find these sort of individuated targets for their wrath you know these little scapegoats so yeah no and, that's what it is yeah and you have sort of i'm wondering if you know maybe to end on a more positive note um sure you know you have some thoughts about i suppose media reform or something like that that would yeah, that would, yeah. would attempt to um at least mitigate some of the effects of this yeah I, you know we, so how would you think about that I, i'm quite uh, so i i, I I didn't have a lot of space in the Palladium piece to outline the program, so I might reserve the specific recommendations for a future uh, long-form essay, but uh, I'm really coming from a very kind of reactionary Luddite, uh, you know, uh, appro approach to this, because, uh, you know, you, we were talking about the other day, you had mentioned the uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, you know, reform, I think he wants to reform social media. Yeah my instinct uh, desires to just abolish social media and go back to like circa 2007, you know, that's what I, uh, you know, that can't be done, but you know, that's, that's sort of my principle. And you know, I'm not on social media. People have said to me, you know, Michael, you, you write essays. Why don't you go on Twitter to promote them? And I, you know, I just, I can't do it. You know, I have, I have a, I occasionally, uh, you know, look into Twitter to do research, but otherwise I'm not on it. 
so I'm very, very reactionary, and uh, my preference would be to abolish social media. So, I mean, in terms of policy, do you have a sense of, um, you know, particular? I mean, you know, as I as we, as I said with the immigration piece, you're you're quite sort of precise in outlining, yeah, um, specific policies to implement. Height sort of has some proposals. You know, I don't want to get too deep into it, but but he has some. Um, you know, if if people check out his most recent piece, um, and he also had an interview with Barry Weiss, you know, where he sort of yeah. outlined some of his proposals. Do you have any um, any notions, sort of in regulatory terms, about how to, you know, because I mean, I guess this is sort of another interesting way that right and left kind of collude on preserving the, the status quo that nobody seems to like, which is, that, yeah. you know, after the Trump era, you had a consensus in a sense on both sides that big tech was, you know, incredibly irresponsible, had had all sorts of harmful effects. They, they saw those in different terms, but nevertheless, they agreed broadly that there should be some kind of regulatory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there should be a regulatory review of the, of, of the technology industry and particularly basically the, the big social media platforms, but because basically they, you know, their, their interests are, are opposed on this front because um, each of them wants to use it to punish the other. Yeah, <laughs> there's no there that there's there's no seemingly meaningful prospect. So I'm just curious if there are any you know similar to kind of how you thought about immigration. Are there if 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 a new coalition were able to emerge that would enable a kind of breakthrough on this? Are there any particular reforms that seem yeah helpful? So, uh, you know, I, I can't speak uh, in in two in. in, in terms that are too specific because I haven't done the specific you know, policy research, the, the legal frameworks. I haven't, I haven't looked into that at all. I probably will, you know, uh, before I write the next piece on it. But, you know, it seems to be the right wants to, to take over big tech. Uh, they want to regulate it like a utility, but, but they want to do it so that because they don't think uh, there's enough free speech, right? The left probably thinks, you know, uh, you know the, the social media censorship hasn't gone far enough. Uh, whereas what I want to do is I want to, you know, again, this is, this is not a specific policy, but just a broad stroke kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, wish is basically I, I would like to nationalize all of the social media platforms and then, you know, sort of shut it down for like four days a week or something and then make everybody go out and, you know, go do something else with their lives, you know, and maybe tax the social media giants and use it to like fund you know, local lyceums or, you know, whatever the, you know, uh, Chautauquas, you know, I, I mentioned that in the piece where people can just congregate and, 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 you know, have a, have a real, you know, civil society again, you know, which again, that's the most reactionary uh, retrograde Luddite thing you could possibly do. But I'm convinced that that is the way to go. Now, bearing that, given how unlikely that is, the, the next best thing would be not, not a policy program, but a cultural movement among, you know, people like you and me, people who, you know, the so-called intelligentsia, you know, the intellectuals, to just get the hell out of social media and, you know, just make it a cultural movement where being on social media is, is uncool, you know, like it's passe to, have, to, to be on Twitter for more than one hour, you know. So I, I'm hoping at least for a cultural movement where we just, an exodus from social media, if that, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, one one version of this that I think is is somewhat picking up steam, which, you know, in a way combines these is, you know, in a small way I've seen among people I know a sort of partial exodus from the sort of major platforms and towards kind of more limited um, kind of member type, you know, sort of more pri- private or semi-private membership communities, which yeah. I think... Um, you know, it ha- has some problems and is in some ways a kind of, um, you know, is likely to, you know, be part of this kind of em- epistemic fracture that you describe in the piece. Yes, yes. But at the same time, it does, I think, fulfill, you know, and, and I mean, I'm involved in a couple things like this and yes. they do have a little bit of that <laughs> Chautauqua Lyceum kind of quality. Yes, yes. Um, and so, so there is some, you know, movement in that direction. I think there is some sort of shift towards a kind of a, a sort of disaggregation, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, may, may have some sort of hopeful aspects. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sell it too hard, but um, I think, yeah, th- there is, uh, there is a kind of, um, you know, a, a a sort of slow exodus and shift towards. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is like, on one hand, we have the problem of sort of epistemic fragmentation. Yes. On the other hand, we sort of have the, I mean, so, you know, on the other hand, we have the problem of everyone being in the same place, right? Yeah. And so what that means is that you have people who are sort of literally incapable of, of talking to each other, right? So, yes. you know, in a sense, what we need are, um, are capacious, but, um, you know, also more limited s- sort of discursive spaces where mm-hmm. there is at least sufficient common ground to enable productive conversation to happen. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that I would agree with that. Um, you know, and I, and, and I would just sort of uh, conclude by, you know, going back to what McLuhan said, you know, w- what is at stake here in this epistemic uh, discussion and in all the other you know, culture war areas that we've covered is the whole linear concept of, of progress, right? That's what's at stake. So, you know, I don't know if a cultural movement is enough to stop that. I don't know if, you know, if, if, uh, you know, starting little clubs is enough to start that reviving life seems, but that, that whole thing is at stake. So that's what I want to impart. I know you said, let's end on a positive note, but I, I want to put the fear of God into your listeners. This, this whole thing that you're a part of that's called civilization is uh, breaking up before our eyes. And we, we need to figure out a way to, to reverse that. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to stop. Yes. So in any case, I will link to the three pieces we discussed and uh, I encourage everyone to check them out. Um, And hopefully we will um, see more, you know, similarly ambitious work out from you soon. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Jeffrey. And I greatly enjoyed the discussion thank you for having me and uh yeah i'm also a big fan of your work i enjoyed your 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 work on Foucault as well so uh yeah happy to happy to be a part of the discussion 